Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, to Shadowcast, episode 21. I'm Whiskey Neon, joined tonight with Black Math. Guten Tag. <laughs> uh, Mr. Chin. Good day. And Zandybot. Hello. So. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, uh, Zandy is no longer uh, going to be with us on Shadowcast for the most part, probably. Uh, but he has told us to go ahead and uh, add his friend to the show, who uh, just happens to sound a whole lot like him. So he may not even notice the difference. So why don't Buddy. you uh, give a proper introduction to yourself, uh, Zandy Bot? Hello. All right. (laughs) 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 No, that's uh, yeah. Zandy's not with us, but I still have audio. (laughs) So we'll be able to do that. and you'll not even notice a difference. But anyways, uh, uh, did uh, anyone do anything cool this past week? Um, well, uh, my coworker and I got notified that we have a large sum of money to spend for the rest of the fiscal year for our incident response department. So we've been going... Shopping, actually putting together a quick budget of things we want to buy to use up the rest of our money. And it's been a lot of fun. Usually you don't get to have this kind of, this kind of freeform fun at work, but uh, we're looking at uh, some dedicated like forensics uh, machines, um, which are really expensive. Some training and things like that, and uh, a lot of little, cool little gadgets and stuff, so... In fairness, Blackmouth, I'm surprised you didn't have that list already prepared and ready to go. That would imply that I'm expecting that we'll get money all the time. Yeah. Always be prepared. Yeah, that's that's uh, kind of coders. Are, uh, sorry, Mr. Chin's uh, whole thing is always being prepared. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's kind of creepy but when you insert Zandybot's laughs like that <laughs> yeah it's even creepier when it's like one of you guys <laughs> oh my god yeah yeah the power that, is mine that guy sounds hot <laughs> I have the weirdest boner right now. <laughs> All right. So, uh, well, that's pretty cool that you have a, uh, uh, opportunity to have an awesome budget. Uh, yeah, I don't think, you know, it's not going to be a regular thing, but just happened to luck out. So that'll be fun. If I play with any cool tools and stuff, I'll maybe have other things to talk about on what happened this week. Cool. Cool. Well, what about you, Mr. Chin? Um, I installed the nest in my home. Thank you, thank you, Airhorns. Um, like it so far. Is it? Hey, it, real quick. Is is it similar to the nest that was installed above your front door? No, oh yeah, it's, it's not. It's not similar at all. <laughs> that was that was actually 
pretty awesome. You should tell that next story. <laughs> <laughs> so there was um, a bird's nest above my front door, and I neglected to uh, I neglected to take care of it really. And um, I should have. I, I realized that, but um, my mother-in-law came over to see the house back when we first got it, and there were birds in the uh, <laughs> there were birds in the nest. And as she walked up, the birds got scared and uh, flew away in horror. And about ten minutes later, she's checking out the master bathroom and looks in the mirror and realizes that the bird had shit all over her. Oh my god. We have a one man laugh track. Oh wow. So But but uh but back to the thermostat I it's pretty cool. Um you know I've yet to really dig into some of the you know features it has and take a look at it further, but um, so far I'm impressed with what they've been able to do. So so uh, what you can do now is install a drop cam. And so while you're at work, you can remotely adjust the temperature really hot <laughs> and then watch your drop cam to see your, your wife take off her clothes. Oh, wow. Man, I need to, I need to get a nest. Yeah, that sounds like a solid investment. But actually, during the day, it's just you know cats and dogs and shit, and they'll probably get hot and. Just hey man, if that's your thing, off and poop all <laughs> yeah. over the place. Well, uh, that's pretty cool. Uh, we had DHA this past week, and Mister Chin and I were there, and uh, you know it was always it's always a good time. Um, there was the editor editor in chief of. Uh, the Dallas Observer was there, and he did a Q&A, and it was pretty interesting. There was a lot of discussion over uh, the media in relation to hackers and uh, you know, his views on what hackers need to do differently to get the message across, uh, some questions in regards to uh, you know, technologies that they use. Come to find out... Uh, his view on it is that like advances like PGP and secure drop and apps like signal are irrelevant to his job because p- putting a postcard in the mail, uh, you know, that type of thing has worked for years and uh, continues to work for them. So it was interesting to see that viewpoint from a journalist, especially one in which you know, the editor in chief of, of a publication that does a lot of local investigative journalism, uh, you know, having that viewpoint. But I doubt that it's like that type of thing where you're going to see a uh, Edward Snowden leak going to a regional, you know, periodical. But a postcard, you mean like. Like, like just dropping a piece of mail in a in a post office box for like some information or, Hey, I have this story. Uh, I need to talk to someone type thing. Uh, you can't really be too anonymous in that scenario. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, like uh, a actual postcard that's, you know, kind of like tweeting to them. Exactly. Yeah. But, uh, 
interesting concept. A lot of, uh, you know, the Q and a was pretty decent. Uh, we've had out of DHA, uh, uh, Coker, a lawyer, logic lawyer. And he, he's, uh, he's done Q and a. So it was interesting having someone from the media do a Q and a as well. Yeah. That went on for quite a while. I was quite surprised. Yeah. Yeah. It was at least 40 minutes long. Uh, probably longer. Uh, and then I gave a talk, which, <laughs> which, uh, Mr. Chin enjoyed, I think. I did. It was, um, very impressive, amusing, and kind of made me looking around the room going, okay, so are there, you know, um, various individuals in this room that are going to come out of hiding or <laughs> are we free and clear? <laughs> yeah. But, uh, no need to worry about that. Cause we'll be covering, uh, my talk in, in the bigger uh, part of your mom tonight. So when I dive into your mom tonight, I'm going to be talking about my talks. So, uh, it was pretty cool. So yeah, good week for, it seems to be all of us. Um, Zandy, how was Zandy? About how was your week? Hello. All right. Well. <laughs> <laughs> so why don't we move into uh, the first segment of the show? Now it's time for the feed. Couple hosting tour exit node raided by cops investigating child abuse. So as most of us know, you know. A lot of kind of a lot of traffic's going to pass through a tour node, and a percentage of that is probably not great. Yeah, um, a lot of cheese pizza. Yeah, <laughs> that's something I learned on Shadowcast. Cheese pizza. Yeah. Anyway, I guess there was a couple that was uh, hosting a, a tour node, and because uh, it was suspected that child pornography was passing through that node. They got raided. Um, I guess the police thought that the traffic ended there, perhaps. I'm not sure if they were an exit node or what. Um, the couple consented to the search and even gave their passwords to police, who subsequently found no child abuse imagery, didn't seize any, equi any equipment, and made no arrests. Uh, but the couple are quoted as saying they were petrified and felt, quote, violated by the encounter. And rightly so. Yeah, that would suck. I guess the police knew that uh, they host an exit. It's an exit node for Tor. Um, so I don't know why they would raid them when they knew that. Oh, I could only Seems imagine. like intimidation, you know? Yeah, yeah. Running but an exit node. Instead of running your own exit, like, you're really asking for it, though, if you're running an exit node from home. I mean, come on. So Seattle police were aware that the couple hosted an exit node and investigators know how Tor works. But a Seattle police spokesperson told NPR that running an exit node doesn't automatically preclude the idea that the people running Tor are not also involved in the alleged criminal activity. Um, sure. Naked Security by Sophos contacted the couple on Twitter and they said that uh, they've closed down their Seattle Privacy Coalition website and email 
and are in the process of rebuilding or replacing all their equipment. Um, they said, we had no choice but to assume all my machines were compromised. <laughs> Good call, though. Yeah. I mean, the, you know, physical access is king, and if uh, the police had their hands all over it, even though they didn't uh, confiscate them, you never know. So, good move. Yeah, that could have been the entire idea is to put in a uh, a, uh, a a tap. What do they call it? The, the legal term for it? Essentially, a, a tap, but uh, whatever. Yeah. It would be a good strategy. Hey, let's uh, raid. Let's not do anything. Everything's hunky-dory. Yeah, a little rubber ducky, right? Exactly, yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> All right, uh, so... Well, what I would suggest if you wanted to do an exit node is um, you can pay for an exit node without even actually having to host it yourself. Um, I forget the site, but uh, you can definitely just pay someone else basically you're 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 paying for them to run the whole thing you don't actually have to get your hands dirty um or you can support financially right right um and the other one is of course looking at uh putting a tour exit note at a local library uh so that's still local you can still set it up and help maintain it but it's at a library and not your home of all places. So, yeah. So anyway, that shit happened. All right, more shit that happened. <laughs> uh, good old buddy boys, the hacking team, lost their license to sell surveillance malware outside of Europe. So for anybody not in the know, uh, hacking team is the name of an Italian company that sold surveillance software or malware as most people would consider it to uh, a lot of state actors and, and other people and they got hacked and all of their internal documents were leaked showing who their customers were and a lot of things like that uh, they actually recovered surprisingly recovered from that and were back in business um, they had big contracts with the FBI actually and DEA uh, making almost $2 million from both. Uh, however, the Italian Ministry of Economic Development said the company would now have to get an individual license, revoking the hacking team's, quote, global authorization, unquote, to export its Galileo spyware. So what that means is a company can still sell Galileo spyware within the European Union without getting a special license, but sales outside of the EU requires permission on a country-by-country -country basis. So Italy, I guess, gets to decide now uh, anybody outside of the EU who can be denied access to uh, some of the hacking team software. Interesting. Yeah. That's crazy. I'm glad that uh, hacking team has <clears throat> some limitations now. So, good news. Yeah. Um, since ransomware has been a hot topic on our last or previous episodes, um, there's a flash zero day that's being used to push ransomware. I think Adobe's working really hard to patch this zero day uh, vulnerability. Um, but apparently attackers are using the previously unpatched flaw in Flash Player to infect victims with either Locky or Cerber ransomware. 
Um, if you listen to the previous episodes, uh, Rainmaker talked about Locky a bit. Uh, Cerber is also crypto ransomware that includes a feature where the infected machine will speak to the victim. Ah, that's cool. I love that. Yeah. That's something right out of a damn movie. Yeah, it probably pops up a picture of the plague and he says, uh, <laughs> open your computer, says, set your computer to download a file. <laughs> oh, oh. <my> gosh. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, stop using Flash. Yeah. Because this shit keeps happening. I know, like, Chrome doesn't have Flash enabled anymore by default. I don't have Flash in Chrome, and I use Chrome for, like, my general web browsing. Just for that reason. I'll keep Flash on, like, Firefox for special apps and things like that that still require Flash, but yeah. I try to be very judicious. Yeah, one thing that I do uh, for my work uh, machines is I have a general purpose browser that I do all of the, uh, you know, work-related normal internet browsing functions and then for sysadmin uh, functions I have a separate browser for that uh, so that I can still have Java and Flash running for those stupid admin panels that I have to use those yep. plugins for but for my general web usage uh, for you know my normal day-to-day -day job having to do whatever it's in Chrome, and then my sysadmin site is in Firefox. So uh, that's something you can do if you're in that s situation. And one cool thing, as an aside there, uh, if you have uh, an ESXi server, if you have to deal with vSphere, uh, you have to uh, use the web client for a lot of features on the newest version of uh, vSphere. But... Uh, what's cool is that they have released a kind of a beta uh, HTML5 based interface for it. So it's an OVA that you can install on your cluster and uh, try it out. So hopefully that's like one big one that I have to use Flash for. All the rest are Java. So I'm excited about that. Hopefully I can just get away from having to use Flash even at work for those panels. <clears throat> but yeah what I find uh, interesting is that even uh, uh, security products uh, a lot of times still require flash for some of their consoles or admin uh, admin interfaces and that is just pitiful it's terrible <laughs> it's almost like requiring IE yeah alright that's how you lose business so, uh, more uh, things about people doing things so you don't have to. The Electronic Frontier Foundation, our good friends who defend our rights in the digital world, is uh, fighting for our rights by fighting for the rights of people that do disgusting things as well, which, you know, is necessary. Um, there's an Illinois law requiring sex offenders to report all internet activity and the EFF is saying it violates free speech rights, which it kind of does. Anyway, it's a long article. I don't want to get into huh. it, but... Uh, That's an interesting concept. What, free speech? <laughs> no, the idea of where 
you can understand the intentions there because you don't want these uh, people going around looking at CP uh, or producing it for that matter. But then also, yes, it, it is a violation of free speech where you, huh, I, that, that's interesting. Also, the definition of a sex offender is thrown into play there, too. You know, yeah, that's true. If you just I mean, pissed it, outside it, in a public place when you were drunk, you can be technically a sex offender for indecent exposure. Yeah, and you, if you, I mean, if you make like, con, you know, conditional requirements when it comes to free speech, then perhaps, oh well, now we can monitor the activity of all quote unquote sex offenders. Let's make it even easier to tag people with the with the sex offender tag. Yeah, and that that really bothers me because that's uh, you know with some of these these laws that come out uh, that are just ridiculous. I, I mean, the, the we're moving forward in the in in regards to a lot of this stuff, but uh, some of these laws where they you know try to justify. Oh God, I don't know. Like, look at the kids who are sexting each other, and then they're both. Uh, considered sex offenders because they're distributing child pornography when they're children themselves. Yeah. yeah, that's just ridiculous. I mean, like, I'm not saying things like that should go without some sort of reprimand or lesson or, you know, whatever. Why? Whatever have you. Why? But tr Why does it well, fucking matter? It's a kid sending another kid a picture of themselves. Of course, we, you know, as, as an adult, you wouldn't want the kid to do that. Exactly. So if they do, they have to have a talking to, right? Yeah, but they shouldn't have to have any legal repercussions for it. That's like saying that... No, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Like, the, the punishment does not fit the crime at all. Like, it's completely disproportionate. Yeah. And some, some kids fooling around... <laughs> like you know at grandma's house <laughs> doesn't mean that they're going to jail unless man that's a disturbing picture <laughs> <laughs> what masturbating at grandma's house <laughs> yeah that's always uh, a fun time <laughs> but uh the, uh... <laughs> the well any anyway if you want to read the article you can just go to this tiny url <laughs> tinyurl.com slash Mr. Chin Birdshit. That's great. All right. Well, we've had enough birdshit, um, I guess. You got any other stories? Uh, yeah, I'll just go through them real quick. Uh, just headline surfing. So uh, the FBI who has, who claims to have, uh, or actually they, they did unlock the the San Bernardino iPhone with the help of a third party. Uh, has stated that their now they're saying it's their iPhone hacking tool cannot unlock the iPhone 5s, 6s, and 6s Plus. So the iPhones that would be vulnerable would be the iPhone 6 and 6 Plus um, and 5C. Yeah. And I'm pre presuming the five, but anyway, um, I can't tell you technically why because I haven't read through the article, but uh, you can just put some effort into it and find it yourself. All right. Uh, so on the ransomware kind of uh, 
topic. Um, there's been a lot of targeted attacks and campaigns against uh, people like CEOs or people working in HR departments, things like that. Uh, phishing has been uh, getting a bit more uh, sophisticated in that way rather than just a, a wide sweeping thing that's extremely obvious to everybody except very old people or very dumb people. Um, so CEOs have been targeted and the FBI estimates that $2.3 billion has been lost just due to CEO email scams. That's a that lot of money. a ton of money. So InfoSec people need to have a talking to with your CEOs and your other C-level execs. Can you hear my cat? Yes, I can. <laughs> yes. She's fucking nuts. Anyway, that happened. Um, and uh, a good friend posted a link for us that uh, the whole Panama Papers uh, uh, scandal and data leak may be responsible or actually may have come about due to a WordPress vulnerability or rather a WordPress plugin yeah. vulnerability. The good old revolution slider. It, that's that's targeted all the time. Like, what's so great yeah. about that plugin anyways? I have no idea. I, had, I used to work at a web hosting company and I had never heard of revolution slider until it became a news topic because of vulnerabilities. And then you come to find out, holy crap, a lot of people use Revolution Slider. Yeah, it, it's, it comes down to you buy a template for your site and it relies on functionality that's in these plugins, yeah. which is horrible. But yeah. <laughs> so Flash and WordPress, the two fucking things that keep popping up in the I got owned category. Stop using Well, them. no, you can totally use was... WordPress. But... Well, I'm saying that majority of people that do use WordPress don't know how to use WordPress, and this kind of stuff happens. I mean, there are a lot of WordPress plugin vulnerabilities that are popping up all the time. And if you want to have a secure WordPress installation, you have to either go completely vanilla or you have to really keep on top of security news yeah, and things yeah. like that. Um... And be okay with disabling plugins. Like, if it's integral to your site's design... You got to have a plan for uh, being able to rip out a plugin or disabling it. Well, I, I would suggest uh, not even doing the whole "Hey, this is my WordPress site" thing. Just have a separate uh, non-web server that is hosting your WordPress site, and use a plugin or script that actually posts the site after you have published your content. Use it like you normally would, but then use a WordPress to static HTML. Uh, script or plugin to publish it to your your actual website so that it's all static HTML. Um, those exist, and there's actually services around it that's very affordable. And that's actually the best way to go about doing WordPress. It's just scary. Uh, what can be done? You can also uh, use a, like a third-party uh, web application firewall service like Cloudflare and. Uh, I think Sucuri, things like that, that, you know, they're, they're always going to be zero days, but uh, they usually work pretty quickly to build in heuristics to look for attacks on new vulnerabilities that are coming out. Yeah. So 
I mean, your site might be vulnerable, but uh, the web application firewall is going to be going to detect the attack and block it, so that's not successful, and you have some time to. Well, you guys, you still have to be careful with those too, because if the attacker is able to get the actual server IP, then they can just access it directly with like Cloudflare and stuff like that. That is yeah. true. That is true. There are also server, but you know. Um, server web app application firewalls right. like mod security for Apache. But yeah, good stuff. Anyway, that's that's all I got. Cool beans. Uh, one thing that's interesting on the subject of uh, ransomware is um, Malwarebytes uh, did a blog post about this malvertising campaign. And what I thought was pretty cool about this is... Uh, that it it does something a little different here than you'll see on a lot of other uh, malvertising campaigns where it's just trying to infect all the things. Um, what this campaign uh, focused on were uh, uh, basically a, a couple of publishers. It was just a handful, and uh, it, it's just <laughs> it's funny seeing like a security blog, uh, you know, from a, a pretty big company posting uh domains to porn sites uh it's just funny to see that <laughs> you're just reading your news and then all of a sudden you see just porno.tv um but i don't know what uh telecinco.es and seriesblanco.com are uh but the rest of them are uh basically just by looking at them those are either uh piracy sites or porn sites but uh how this campaign worked is it would actually uh run a enumeration vulnerability uh on uh, internet explorer to look at files on the local file system and if it detected uh, a handful of applications then it wouldn't run the payload and those are uh, VMware tools, uh, VirtualBox guest editions, parallel tools, Malwarebytes anti-malware, Trend Micro, and Kaspersky uh, multiple, uh, you know, basically their antivirus, internet security, total security, a few of their products, just Kaspersky products, Trend Micro, Malwarebytes, Parallels tools, VirtualBox guest editions, VMware tools, and Fiddler of all things. So I thought that was funny that Fiddler was included there. Like, we don't want people seeing what's going on here. Uh, so that was pretty cool that it actually looks for those applications. If those exist, then it will not run the payload. And the payload itself uh, is the server ransomware. Uh, so, uh, yeah, you have these... Uh, this advertising campaign for uh, ransomware, but looks for these specific programs. And if it sees it, just doesn't even bother. But I really like the idea of uh, looking for Fiddler and the VMware tools, virtual box guest editions and parallel tools. Because if it's a VM, then they're going to be like, well, shit, they can restore from snapshots. Not even worth our time. Yeah, like v uh, VM detection exists in a lot of droppers but by doing this you don't even get the dropper you know yeah. they're they're yeah they're, they're keeping themselves even more quiet and making it harder 
for you know companies to maybe put out definitions and things like that because uh, it's going to be a lot more quiet. Well, well, and another thing with that is that it actually is uh, doing something there to make it a little bit harder for uh, malware analysis. You know, uh, Fiddler's commonly yep. used, uh, and you definitely use a virtual environment when you're running a lot of these uh, sandbox um, dynamic analysis tools, you know? Uh, so that's pretty cool. Uh, blog post there, uh, talking about it. Uh, I thought it was pretty clever. Uh, in other news, uh, the FCC is doing something, uh, that's pretty cool. Uh, if you're familiar with any product you basically buy, that's food in the United States, you are used to seeing nutrition labels. Well, the FCC is doing uh, this very similar style nutrition label type thing for uh, broadband. And so instead of nutritional facts, it's broadband facts. <laughs> yeah, and it looks really? just like the nutritional facts little chart, uh, but it's for your broadband facts. And uh, it's cool because it'll show you information there that a lot of times you won't even notice uh, or, 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 you know, it's stuck in the verbiage of your contract that you don't really know. So one in this example, it's like monthly charge for a month to month plan. Uh, and that's one thing. Monthly charge for a two year contract plan and then other charges and terms, uh, government taxes. You know, it brings down the whole thing and the speeds and all of that stuff. Unfortunately, with this, it, I mean, it's an amazing idea, but uh, it's not forced that they actually use this broadband facts label system. All of this information that's on it is required as part of the new transparency requirements uh, in regards to the net neutrality order that they, uh, you know, reclassified everything with. Uh, but this is a voluntary. Uh, thing that they can use for this uh, label program, which is honestly probably not going to be used at all because why would an ISP <laughs> want to do that? But I like the idea of maybe a, like a consumerist.com type site or a tech dirt uh, type site having these broadband facts labels for each ISP, you know, just independently maintained, looking through the contract for the right verbiage and putting it all in there. This could really help consumers in a quick way see what they're actually getting and paying for. Uh, so, yeah, that's pretty cool of the SEC. It's weird when you see a, a government agency like this actually doing something that's beneficial. Yeah, they're one of the few. They're one of the few that more consistently has good news for the public than uh, the not. At least right now. <laughs> kind of rare. Yeah, I mean, they, they do some things that are mind-boggling, but uh, I don't see any other agency that has multiple, multiple things that uh, make the news that are good for good for citizens yeah exactly like yes uh but yeah so 
Uh, I guess the, one of the biggest stories of the week has been uh, the release of the Panama Papers, which have been huge. I mean, this is a huge deal. Uh, and it's awesome as hell to see something like this occur. 11.5 million confidential documents for over 214,000 offshore companies that were shell companies uh, in Panama by a, uh, uh, I guess a law firm you would call them. Uh, I don't even know how to say that. You know, anytime I have to say foreign stuff, I'm always doing it wrong, but it's Mossack Fonseca. I don't know. I have no idea. I know. That's why why I like to let you just say it. (laughs) Just just go YOLO and let him screw it up. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Mossack yeah. Fonseca. Uh, yeah. But what this did was it revealed like really important information, like who the shareholders and directors of the companies were uh, and how you had all of these publicly elected officials and uh, rich people and celebrities, etc., cetera, uh, were, uh, you know, basically hiding their money. So uh, you have... Uh, government officials from Argentina, Iceland, Saudi Arabia, Ukraine, United Arab Emirates, uh, uh, relatives and, uh, you know, uh, some officials uh, and, you know, close people to uh, um, other countries, 40 other countries, uh, big ones being uh, China, India, Brazil, France, Malaysia, Mexico, Peru, Pakistan, Romania, Russia, South Africa, et cetera, et cetera, including the UK. Uh, and and the and this particular organization uh, had a lot of people in the UK that use their services. And so the total amount of uh, information here was over 2.6 terabytes of data. Uh, yes, immense. and... Uh, it was leaked to, uh, and I ain't even going to, there's no way I'm going to try to say the name of this German newspaper, uh, but um, whatever the name of this German <laughs> newspaper is, uh, uh, they, they, uh, they got the information starting earlier last year from a... I, I think it's Süddeutsch Zeitung. There we go. Zeitung. Uh, yeah, that's uh, we'll, we'll roll with that. Uh, but a whistleblower who went under the name John Doe <laughs> leaked, <laughs> leaked all this stuff. And, and the information dates back to the 70s. So this is insane. Um, the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists uh, has, uh, you know, basically worked together with over 400 journalists at 107 uh, media organizations and over and, and uh, 76 countries have all been a part of this. So, yeah, it, it's insane. Uh, and they're going to continue to publish information. And there are a lot of people who are calling conspiracies left and right as to why there haven't been any United States uh, you know, big names at least that have been released with this. Yeah, I, I was I was surprised. Um, there have been political leaders that have stepped down. 
because of these. Iceland. Yep, Iceland. Is the big one. Um, the Prime Minister of Iceland. Um, shit, I hate these fucking names. Sigmundur Gunnlaugsson. I don't know. He, he, he resigned. That's pretty good. Uh, yeah, he, he resigned on Tuesday. And, uh, and then a, a, count, a city council member also uh, resigned. And Iceland isn't that big of a country. So, um, you know, when you have a lot of protests in Iceland, it can actually, you know, become a... Uh, well, he was concealing millions of dollars worth of assets. Yes, yes. Uh, uh, yeah, he, he basically had a big egg on his face. And, and one reason why this had such an impact on Iceland is... Uh, the citizens of Iceland have been screwed over by big banks. Uh, the financial crisis that occurred in 2009 in the United States happened in Iceland before it happened in the U.S. And it devastated the economy in Iceland and WikiLeaks. It was fundamental in um, causing reform and uh, Iceland's citizens really like just having enough of this shit so when you find your prime minister doing this sketchy stuff funneling all this stuff to offshore banks it's really a, a, a sore spot for uh you know these people and there were protests and they it actually you know he stepped down adding, adding but, insult to injury uh, apparently um he owned a secret offshore company with his wife but did not declare it when he entered parliament Oh man, that's great. Apparently, China is uh, censoring all mentions of the Panama Papers countrywide with yep. their great big, amazing firewall. Oh yeah, uh, <laughs> and Russia has claimed that this is all just a propaganda thing. From you know, the U.S. is just trying to make Russia and everyone else look bad. <laughs> And that's why the United States hasn't had anything really released yet. But, but, uh, well, there's more coming according to the editor of the, of the, the original, uh, paper in Germany. He, he said, uh, just wait for what is coming next. Oh man. Uh, but the McClatchy newspapers, uh, um, the only U S news org that was involved in this, claims that they have found four Americans in the documents um, and it wasn't really newsworthy as far as what they've said so far because all of these people were previously uh, either accused or convicted of the crimes such as the tax evasion and fraud so uh, man wh- yeah what a bomb if the Clintons are named like, well that's what there's I keep thinking. a lot of I, I, that would be huge. Yes, it would be very huge, uh, especially considering that this has been a huge campaign thing for Bernie Sanders because uh, the Panama Free Trade Agreement, which uh, made all of this possible and, and worse uh, than it would normally have been, was both supported by Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton. And Bernie Sanders opposed it from the get-go, even foreshadowing what we see today. So he's been using that as a 
as a thing like you told you so and so <laughs> if there ends up being a, uh, a Clinton connection there then it could be pretty pretty fun uh, a lot of drama could unfold there but there's a lot of people who are, are speculating but I honestly think that if there was something there uh I would think that they would have already dropped that one. I mean, why not? Well, I mean, you know they, I mean? they have to like, I mean, they can't blow their load all at once, right? They have to, to keep the public's interest. It just has to get worse and worse and worse. True, true. You're right. Uh, I, I guess right now, instead of blowing their node, uh, their node, their load, they are uh, edging. And <laughs> <laughs> I think I have my next maybe. tiny URL title. <laughs> and maybe when they um, finally do drop the load, it, it'll be a significant release. Hey, Mr. Chin. Yo. Do you uh, offload any uh, funds into an <laughs> offshore Panama company? I do not. He has all of his sort of Bitcoin. I do not. Oh, you have Bitcoin, and don't lie. I okay. I have Bitcoin, but that's the extent of it. Yeah, that's that's what I would say if I were in your shoes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but the Panama Papers—it's a big deal. Uh, there's a lot of really inter- interesting information, uh, so uh, we'll be dissecting this for a while. Um, there's, uh, there's a slight chance that at some point, uh, these documents might be leaked in their entirety. And if that happens, that will be very lulzy for everyone in the world. So let's cross our fingers for that one. (laughs) And so, uh, Mr. Chin, do you have any news items? Uh, I do actually. So. Um, back uh, earlier in 2014, there was a company by the name of Rover. Let me make sure I've got this. Uh, Revolve, I'm sorry. A company by the name of Revolve. And they made uh, $300 um, home automation devices that were designed to uh, control appliances that you own, like a, a washing machine or make you coffee, which was something I'd totally be interested in. A couple of other things. Um, well, in 2014... Uh, Nest, um, and I'm unsure if they were owned by Alphabet at the time or if they were independent, but in either event, um, Nest bought out the Revolve uh, line of products. And at that point, um, Revolve stopped producing additional uh, product because, you know, you get bought out, um, but offered to continue supporting what they had uh, in a lifetime capacity. Well... Not so much. Um, Nest this week pulled the plug on their support for the Revolve products in their entirety. Now, these are $300 devices that uh, shipped with, the, from what I'm understanding, um, several additional hardware features that were not enabled. Um, and the thought and hope was that a future firmware release would um, enable them instead uh Instead, by pulling the plug, uh, Nest is uh, permanently bricking the devices and uh, making them completely um, unusable. Now, uh, it, it is said that 
can customers can in theory point the device to a different um, upstream server and whatever whatever that may mean for the device but that's going to be something that we would do something you know zandy would do or zandy bot in this case um <laughs> not uh, thank you uh, not you know not joe schmo down the street um and it sucks but lifetime doesn't mean much when the company is bought out so yeah um on the other hand though i would love for something to automatically make my coffee do you know uh, how large their customer base was like how many people this uh, affects not- uh, you know, those details are a little vague. Uh, from what I've been able to find, it wasn't terribly large to begin with, which probably explains why uh, they stopped supporting it immediately after the buy, or stopped producing it immediately after the buyout. Yeah, their liability was low. Yeah. Typical business yeah. decision. Yeah. So, uh, from the business side, I get it. I mean, you got to trim the fat where. Still shitty. It is still shitty. Well- well, how old um, are these apply- these these devices? You're saying like they got bought out in uh, 2014, so the hub debuted in 2013 and was discontinued after Nest acquired uh, Revolve in late 2014. So oh, wow. minimum That's not that two long. years. Yeah. Um, the selling point was that the one-time payment of $300 included a quote lifetime subscription, including updates. Um, the device, as I mentioned, shipped without all of its antennas being functional yet, so customers expected that the antennas would be available or be enabled through updates. And you know, instead, 18 months after the last uh, units were sold, um, the device is slated to be uh, intentionally, permanently, and completely disabled, at least officially through, you know revolve and nests upstream stuff now i'm sure there are ways to to keep it alive but you know at that point i don't know i might just for kicks but how many people are gonna do that not very many yeah Uh, (laughs) um companies historically have a history of doing this um you know google has disabled privacy settings on android sony took away to sony took away the ability to run Linux on a PS3, and uh, similar things that Nintendo did with the Wii U. So um, I guess we really shouldn't be surprised. Um, The interesting part about uh, modifying any of these devices to make them do what you want to do is you skirt the gray area between um, legal and uh, violations of the DMCA. Um, Well, Of course, you know, it's a gray area regardless. I mean, that is something that I would... I personally would pursue just for the educational benefit um, under control lab conditions, but um, you know, I mean, it still sucks for the average consumer. If there's no if there's no profit involved or revenue generation, I mean, it's really hard to have some some sort of DMCA claim stick, especially when the company's no longer supporting nor generating revenue from these things at all. Yeah. That's very true. I don't think you'd be in risk of. Uh, That's right, true. I mean, they're not the car companies, right? Right. They probably, they obviously don't give a fuck. So, hack away. Hack away. <laughs> the whole lifetime thing is is very 
have bait and switch in a lot of ways, you know. Uh, it's lifetime until the life of the product. Uh, and we're canceling it in six months, and we're doing a very similar product. It's like unlimited storage. <laughs> exactly. It's unlimited until you start using it like it's unlimited. Then you find out it's not. Or in the case of uh, certain companies, uh, you get unlimited uh, photo storage, and then you end up using it for files because you figure out a way to do it. <laughs> so that's another topic. Another topic for another day. <laughs> or never. That works too. Uh, well, so are you happy with your nest? Is that is that what uh, you're saying now? Or are you well, I am. No, I'm happy. Well, that's um, good. It's, it's, I, and I never thought I would say this. And when I mentioned to Black Math that I was uh, purchasing one, um, he was quite surprised just because of my reputation for these sorts of things. Yeah. But um, it's really cool to be able to, you know, go out of town and go, shit, forgot to turn down the thermostat. I just pull up my phone and hit a couple buttons and it'd be done. Um, and the other hand, there are security implications there. And like I said, I, I've yet to really dig into it and figure out um, what's going on. I would really like to see the sort of traffic that the device uh, sends back to Nest itself. Um, and I'm sure I can find a way to make that happen, but I just installed it this, you know, this evening. So, um, so you have uh, you built your own uh, gateways or routers, right? Right. What's your IP again? <laughs> no, I'm not going to do anything. I just want to see if you pop up on Shodan sometime soon. Um, my 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 setup is not complete. So at this time, I'm not comfortable giving out. And even that, I'm not comfortable giving out because I don't want another HP uh, situation. Oh, come on. It's not a Raspberry Pi. You should be good. Uh, and hell, you're yeah, on the well, podcast. I have no reason to <laughs> HP. Yeah, you. this is true. This is very true. <laughs> you have to now, it's Andy on the other hand. Uh, what about Zandy? He's here with us. Hello. <laughs> uh, oh god alright so does that close up our news from everyone I think it I does I hope so yeah me too how about a lot that of news. why don't we move into uh, what previously was uh, Zandy segment of the show that's now I guess going to be a rotating thing uh, which is straight out of Florida A moment of silence, please. Edward Archbold, 32, passed away recently, minutes after winning a contest in South Florida. He had eaten more than 60 grams of mealworms, 35 three-inch long superworms, and a bucket of discoid roaches. What? He took part of the yeah. He took part of this contest. Took part in this contest. Because he wanted to get the first prize, of course. Because you, you don't do this to lose first. You do this to win, clearly. Uh, the prize, and an ironic twist, was a python snake that uh, <laughs> <laughs> he, he was going to give this snake as a present to his friend. Instead, 
he gave his organs to the medical examiner for further review. <laughs> 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 oh my god. Oh. The cause of death was asphyxiation. Excuse me, asphyxia. Fuck it. <laughs> ass. Ass. That was, it was ass. <laughs> okay, he fucking choked. Um, oh, really? I thought it was like they yeah. like fucked up his internals, but he choked? Asphyxia due to choking and aspiration of gastric contents. Oh. Well, if he oh wasn't aspirating now, he'd be aspirating later. <laughs> Oh my he God. would. He he's he now um, has a spot on the mixtape of uh, people who asphyxiated on their own vomit. Oh like, man, that's pretty disgusting. God, the rest in peace, Mister Archibald. He ate a bucket of cockroaches. He did. Jeez. This video. Oh no, no. Yeah, there's got to be something yes. in the water in Florida, man. There is video. Actually, yeah. they do have a problem with their water table. Maybe that's why society's dumbing down is because generations of people are just keep going there for spring break. <laughs> and it's fucking up everybody's minds in higher education. I think there's a lot uh, that needs to be investigated there. Like, uh, they've been using their water for agriculture and it's sucked their water table dry that's why they have all of those uh uh shit with sinkholes all the time and they're replacing that water with something right right let me right let me, right let me look on infowords and i'll tell you what's happening in florida uh meanwhile meanwhile you can uh, view uh the remainder of this article and the associated video at tinyurl.com slash Zandibot Tihi. <laughs> is that T E E H E E? Yes, this is not a laughing matter. Tango Echo Echo. Hotel Echo Echo. <laughs> now, speaking of not a laughing matter, I'm gonna I'm gonna go off on a little tangent oh, here. No. Um, no, no, Uh-oh. this is this is pretty funny. Um, so, uh, at my last job, uh, there was a company wide thread that went out. I don't remember exactly what it was, but it ended up with a bunch of uh, replies, uh, one of those fun type of mailing lists. And uh, a manager on third shift um, was on the list and he got really pissed off because he's trying to sleep and everybody is replying to this thread. Um, (laughs) So he sends sends a reply and says, hey, you know, I'm trying to sleep. Please stop replying. Uh, His last name was Teehee. And somebody replied and said, yes, everyone, this is not a laughing matter. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I love mailing lists. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm on the uh, DC 214 mailing list. And there was some, like, someone was commenting on a news article and how there, someone had a, uh, a DEF CON cap on. And uh, someone asked what the news story was about. And I just made up the most ridiculous thing, which was... <laughs> That it was like, uh, it was a story about brand loyalty on tuna brands and that his favorite was Chicken of the Sea. <laughs> oh, man. It's it's funny when you can have mailing lists that, you know, mass amounts of people can mail. Uh, 
I think the the best case of that is the University of Louisiana at Lafayette. Uh, the entire uh, the, the entire students and faculty were emailed the night before finals from a Trinity R. Woods uh, asking if anyone had notes for the class that she had a final in the next day. And every single person got that email. And it was amazing to be at a bar uh, and seeing everyone get that email in that bar. And it went, uh, like, there was memes instantly. There was Twerk for Trinity uh, Facebook page. Uh, she was on the news. Please remove me from this thread. Yeah. <laughs> as, as a, a, a little note there is actually uh, Blackmath and I have been uh, having a lot of fun for probably close to a month now. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> there is this... Uh, there is this person I have not talked to in probably, shit, I don't know, at least uh, six years or so. I don't know. Uh, but she uh, put me in a group message with like 200 people spamming her current business venture, which is one. Of, I don't know what it was, but it was some, something like Sensi or one of those multi-level marketing type things. Uh, and... Anytime someone puts me in a group message, it is now my group message. I am owning it. <laughs> and so the thing about it is, is that with these group messages, you can add people to it. You can change the topic name. And so I just started spamming it with stickers and GIFs and added black math to it. And he and I have been spamming GIFs in this group message. <laughs> At least, at least uh, once uh, a day a piece uh, for, for, for in a month. And there's been so many people demanding to be removed and getting butt hurt. So I named the, t- the topic of the group Support the Troops. So, <laughs> but it's been going yeah. on. And, and now the current <laughs> amount of people who are left who have not figured out how to leave a group on Facebook is about 70 people out of the original 200. (laughs) Uh, The current, oh no, we're down to uh, 62 people outside of us who are in this group. uh, Out of the original. Constantly been getting notifications. Yeah, yeah. That's the thing. It would be be hilarious. Like these are all people local to a specific geographical area, right? Uh, I, I don't know. Probably for the most part. Okay, it would be hilarious to say, "Hey, we're meeting up at the, you know, local McDonald's or whatever Friday at at seven p.m." (laughs) (laughs) I just got a notification on my phone. Whiskey Neon sent a sent a gif of Kanye West to support the to support the troops. (laughs) Yeah, that's the best part. Is that anyone in here gets a notification (laughs) on their phone if they have the Facebook app on? And then I commonly do these uh, posts at like four o'clock in the morning. <laughs> so, is there is there a time zone difference? Because no, that would be even no, better. it's not. It's all basically Central Time Zone, so it's even better. Uh, but yeah, so there's a. It'd be it would be hilarious if it were Pacific and you were sending these at four o'clock in the morning or six o'clock in the morning for you. <laughs> but either way, it has the desired effect. I was just thinking like you could be completely awake and just be all, 
you know, wakey wakey eggs and bacon. Oh yeah, we, we basically do that. Like, I, I I'll, I'll post like a, a Monday gif, like like this Monday I posted a Bugs Bunny, and he's like scratching himself in a robe, and it says Happy Monday. <laughs> and, <laughs> uh, Black Math has a camel saying. Guess what day it is? <laughs> it's hump day. That was yesterday's. So yeah, we just constantly do this, and these poor people don't know what to do. One person gives us the thumbs up constantly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know who that guy is, but he's uh, he's cool. He always gives thumbs up. Yeah. <laughs> um, I did something similar once. I was uh. On a, it wasn't a mailing list. It was it was a distribution list uh, from Juniper, the network hardware manufacturer. Oh, this will be good. And uh, uh, I was part of a uh, not a beta test, but they were they wanted uh, user input on a new product or a new version of a product they were they were revamping. So I agreed to take part in it, and I guess a, a handful of other customers did too. And all the people that took part in this were on a distribution list. And the lady who was uh, in charge of this project sent a message out to this distribution list once. But instead of being like a like using mail like mailing list software where it actually sends individual messages out to each member, it sent one message out and BCC'd every member. So what happens? People start replying, but they hit reply all. And this starts happening. And then people start hitting reply all saying, don't hit reply all or remove me from this. (laughs) And people start getting worked up and mad. And I'm seeing this happen over the course of, you know, like half a day. And I just couldn't resist. So I, I hit reply all. And I said, in my most official sounding tone. Oh, I I did this from a Gorilla Mail account because I wanted to see if uh, I could reply to... Oh, no, it was like a distribution list because I wanted to see if you could reply to the original sender and if it would get sent to this entire group of people. And uh, so I did it from a Gorilla Mail account, not knowing if it would go out to everybody or if it wouldn't. And what I said was, uh, if you'd like to be removed from the list hit reply all with stop, drop, roll. <laughs> and I hit send. And so I'm waiting and I see in my inbox, it pops up somebody not on the original distribution list writing to everybody <laughs> saying to be removed. Reply all with stop, drop, roll. And then, <laughs> and then I waited a few minutes longer and then they start coming in. Oh, nice. <laughs> but, but the best part, the best part was that, I mean, this is full of people who like, Managed network equipment, right? So I was yeah. surprised how dumb some people were, but you know they're obviously tech savvy people too, and they start hitting reply all with like LOL, <laughs> and like oh my god, this is the best thing today. Thank you so much for this. <laughs> oh, it was great. That's awesome. Well, it's funny is my coworker who's also on the list had no idea it was me, and I could hear him laughing. <laughs> <laughs> and I told him what was going on. He's like, "Oh my god, that's beautiful." That's awesome. Oh, man. Oh. Well, 
Well, that's that wraps up Florida, yeah, man. Exactly. That was a damn great uh, Florida, man. So, thank you, Mister Chen, and thank You're quite you. Welcome. Always thank a you, pleasure. Andy Bot. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, so I guess it's time to move into our main topic of the show, or what we like to call your mom. Come on. Come all. Engaging your mom in three, two, one. Activate. So, hacktivism, it's a thing. It's existed for quite a bit. And uh, I guess a real first example of uh, hacktivism in the sense that we look at it today uh, was in eight, 1989, uh, where you have uh, these group of Aussies who are based out of Melbourne who created uh, this worm called Wank. It was uh, the Wank worm. It was Worms Against Nuclear Killers. And uh, this was put on a network that was shared between NASA and the Department of Energy. Uh, and this was right before the Galeo space shuttle was going to lift off. And there was a lot of protests and controversy involving that because of the fact that uh, there was uh, plutonium involved in the power modules for Galeo. And uh, the whole idea with this was that there was a lot of activists that did not want um, plutonium flown in the air into space. So... That was the whole idea, and this worm was deployed, and it's just, you know, believed that Julian Assange was involved in that worm when he was a kid, but uh, he wasn't actually, uh, you know, convicted, and and he does, he's never actually admitted to it, uh, so who knows, but that's where hacktivism really got kicked off, and today we have uh well anonymous and uh lulsec and all these different things so we have uh various groups out there who are doing their uh their hacktivist acts but what we're going to talk tonight is sort of like hacktivism but an actual uh i guess uh plan and target in mind in regards to uh, political elections and and utilizing grassroots platforms and combining that with uh, technological tools to accomplish your goal. And so there's a lot of different things that have uh, come up over the years in regards to uh, you know going after people and in in regards to using technology and in Panama papers is an example of a whistleblower having change overnight around the world. Edward Snowden, an example, Chelsea Manning, um, you know, those are in the digital age examples of these leaks that are, are, you know, forms of activism, but this isn't what we're going to be concentrating on. We're going to be concentrating on uh, another side of this, another angle, uh, if you will. And the first one we're going to look at is uh, Enrique P- 
Pena Nieto, I guess is how you say his name. I don't, again, I'm awful at this, but uh, the 57th president of Mexico who was elected in um, 2012. He is the current president of uh, Mexico. And how he got in office uh, was by complete manipulation by a team of hackers. Uh, which is crazy, right? Um, so the guy who's responsible for this is, again, I'm going to butcher this name. It's Andres uh, Sepulveda. Fuck. Oh, God, this is horrible. But anyways, uh, <laughs> he uh, was paid uh, $600,000 uh, with a to like, give it, with that budget, he had a team of hackers who actually took campaign strategies, um, manipulated social media, and uh, created actual spyware that was installed on opposing um, offices. And uh, this was all done to rig the election for. Uh, the current president of Mexico. Um, now he started this uh, entire uh, career of this um, political hacking uh, for for elections uh, back in 2005, and this was all he basically did was do this in Latin America. Uh, but for $12,000 a month, it would buy you um, the crew that could do things such as hack smartphones, um, spoof websites and clone those, uh, send uh, mass emails and text messages. For $20,000 a month, uh, you can have digital interception. Uh, you can do uh, attacks, decryption of encrypted communications and uh, defense against your own infrastructure. Um, so he had this huge network that he operated, and he was able to be, put a the current president in Mexico in place uh, by being a hacker for hire, for lack of a better term. And uh, that's insane that the current president was put in uh, using these means. And so uh, we want to explore this whole concept and not just being like someone who, you know, is getting a bunch of money dropped on them. What if you were a activist or what if you were a campaign and you wanted to do this simple, uh, similar acts? How would we go about doing that? How could we, um, you know, theorize methods of going about doing this? And that's what this discussion is going to be over. And the title... Uh, of this would be uh, uh, guerrilla grassroots in this sense because you're using grassroots platforms and methodologies combining that with guerrilla uh, tactics. So uh, some examples of, of big profile things that we can look at here uh, of recent was the great canon of China, which I find interesting uh, that we'll be talking about later. Uh, some of the terms that will be used here uh, are electronic civil disobedience, uh, which I feel falls under this. Uh, the concept of the fifth estate, which is 
uh, uh, for those of you who don't understand where that comes from, you have the three estates of the realm, which is kind of a reference to the UK's uh, parliament, where you have the House of Lords, uh, the House of, I forget what it's, spirits, spirituals or whatever. Uh, the concept comes from the old bishops, and you had the lords, and then the House of Commons, which were the normal fucks. And the fourth estate is the press, the traditional mainstream media. And the fifth estate is this idea of bloggers and WikiLeaks and, uh, you know, internet-based uh, citizen journalism, taking it from all of these other organizations uh, to kind of keep all the others in check. So we're going to go through all of this and uh, guys, feel free to hop in whenever you feel appropriate okay um (laughs) so so when we look at the grassroots uh movements uh that have directly impacted the united states uh elections uh if we look at 2008 we had barack obama uh when he um did his primary campaign and later his general election campaign uh, you know, grassroots involvement was influential in his election. Uh, he actually, before his campaign started, met with a former uh, Mozilla executive who was a board member of Facebook at the time um, in a, a, a meeting uh, that was just between Barack Obama and two other people. And that's when the discussion began on how to uh, use uh, social platforms uh, and and new uh, platforms that the web enables people to use to uh, use for his campaign. Uh, and it was highly effective. His phone banks were highly, highly effective in the primaries. Uh, and on the other side, you have Ron Paul, who was kind of like the Internet's, uh, you know, candidate uh, for lack of a better term, a lot of people on the internet were, were fans of Ron Paul. He didn't get a lot of the mass media exposure. And so the Tea Party uh, concept came out of, uh, hey, he's not getting the exposure we feel he needs. Um, let's have a day where the supporters are encouraged to donate uh, money on that specific day and we break a campaign finance record so that the media has to talk about it and it ended up working and there was repeat tea party days uh again this whole tea party concept comes from a rehashing of the original uh tea party in boston this was like a monetary uh digital uh tea party and it worked and then a whole movement came out of that and it continues to today. Of course, it's not the same grassroots organization that started with Ron Paul. The Koch brothers got involved. And then you have still a lot of these people can attribute their success to uh, this grassroots platform, the Tea Party, that all came back from a candidate uh, who wasn't getting the exposure that he wanted back in 08. In this election, we see... A uh, similar thing with Bernie Sanders being very popular online and using, uh, you know, technology online towards his advantage. 
and we also see on the, on the other side of the spectrum Donald Trump having this grassroots platform that is uh, basically his campaign is him and a few other people, but he's writing his own speeches. He's doing his own thing. And this grassroots movement for him has been extremely successful as well. So grassroots is very important for the political uh, spectrum in the United States. And uh, when we look at these political elections, uh, it's it's very relevant there, but it even is down to your local, uh, you know, elections as well. So it all comes together. And one key important part of it is social media. Uh, and when we look at how you organize for a grassroots movement, uh, Twitter has been a game changer for that. When there's protest, when there are... Uh, brainstorming ideas uh twitter is a very easy platform to send out your message anywhere you're at um, get replies from people have hashtags that can group the entire concept in one hashtag and uh spread out the information you know back about 10 years ago we were looking at facebook and that it was very influential in the same way for grassroots movements and protests where you could have groups, you could have events, and there was a lot of collaboration that existed on Facebook, and there still is, but a lot of that's moved to Twitter now, and it's a very important uh, part of the grassroots movements in regards to technology. Uh, one organization that is very great at developing uh, the tools for activists uh, is Rise Up. And that is known mostly for RiseUp.net, where they provide uh, email, free email that is uh, you could trust a whole lot better than you could like Gmail, Yahoo, or any of the other. Uh, you know, they're not they're a nonprofit. They're not you're not the the uh, product at that point. Uh, it's a what what would what would you classify RiseUp as a um, Although they're a nonprofit, but the, other than that, the, their their whole goal is for uh, freedom of speech and empowering people. So uh, they're a very popular host for email services. Uh, they also provide VPN services as well. Uh, but what I find interesting is the Rise Up Labs. That's RiseUpLabs.org, and they have a web application called uh, Crabgrass which is a social networking platform for, really designed around organizing grassroots uh, movements and protests. Uh, and they have other things that they've worked on as well. But crabgrass, crabgrass yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, and that's the URL for crabgrass is crabgrass.riseuplabs.org if you want to check it out. Um, another example of kind of like a platform that's uh, a similar concept, not really grassroots, but a uh, getting your message across uh, using technology and, and providing a platform. You obviously have something as big as WikiLeaks. Uh, you know, that's a huge platform that's been used. Uh, but there's a lot of other ones that... Uh, 
I think are really important, like Muckrock. Muckrock is a site dedicated for um, FOIA requests. Uh, you can file a request really easily using their site. Uh, and once you get that FOIA request, you can upload the information to Muckrock. And it's now something that anyone can search and use. And it's very valuable for journalists and activists to be able to get information and share it uh, and build a bigger story uh, and learn more about what's going on uh, in their in their neighborhood, you know. So uh, and another one I would like to mention is Chilling Effects uh, was... Uh, has now been renamed to Lumen, uh, but oh, the I didn't know that. yeah yeah uh, this was created for uh, um, basically if you send a cease and desist or a DMCA takedown, uh, this is a site where uh, affected parties can upload those notices, and it's posted publicly and Google actually uses Lumen uh, for all DMCA takedowns. They publish that takedown on Lumen and if you search for something uh, and the content's been removed due to a DMCA request, uh, you can actually, it'll notify you at the bottom of the result and you can click on a link and it'll send you to the actual takedown notice. Which is hysterical because Lumen actually works as a search engine at that point for shit that's been taken down with DMCA request. <laughs> I've played with the idea for years of just scraping Lumen's database with all the links, spidering the websites, and having a search engine dedicated for things that's been removed from the internet. But I don't want to go to jail because I'm sure something horrible would happen if that was done. But I highly suggest someone do that. And if you wanted to do that, you could use a tool called Yacy, which is a decentralized peer-to-peer -peer search engine. Uh, just as a quick aside. Anyways, uh, there's a lot of tools out there. There's a lot of websites, a lot of resources. But when it really comes down to getting the mass audience, you have to use sites like Facebook and, and Twitter because that's where the eyeballs are. And... Uh, one thing that's great about social media, there's a couple of great things actually about social media, is that you have um, immediate access to the entire world. You know, if you're doing a campaign, if you're wanting to take over a campaign, uh, your access can be heavily limited uh, if the local media does not want to cover you. Or if you do not have the ability to uh, you know, get through the the noise that is for your local news cycle. Uh, if you want to have a bigger impact, potentially uh, force the news to cover things, social media, having a global populace involved can actually help in getting your point across. One example of this uh, can be the Pirate Bay. The Pirate Bay had a lot of uh, legal um, <laughs> threats thrown at them for years and what did they do with them they they basically pissed on every single request that they ever got and archived all of it online for people to read those entertaining emails but 
uh, political movement actually started around Pirate Bay and started the Pirate Party. And what the whole idea with the Pirate Party was to reform copyright law. And this sparked an international movement. And if you look in Sweden, they actually won parliament seats. And that's amazing because this was an example of where an international community was able to promote these ideals and push this issue and had a regional impact, but it was largely pushed and supported by a worldwide audience. And if you did not have these platforms, that simply would not have been able to get the traction that it did at the time. And of course, the the issue itself of Pirate Bay being the source of all of this wouldn't have existed either. But the fact is, is that you had a worldwide audience contributing to changing something on a local level. And that's significant. Uh, so when we look at our country by country elections or state by state or providence by providence, et cetera, et cetera. It is something that an entire uh, country on the other side of the world, a lot of those citizens could actually have an uh, influence on getting a message out for a candidate that would otherwise not even be relevant. Uh, So creating content that causes engagement is one aspect that social media allows for campaigns and disinformation campaigns. Uh, Putting out uh, noise on the internet is as easy as opening a Blogspot account. Uh, If you try to search for a topic of any kind of, uh, you know, scientific... Let's say you want to search about what the fuck those things are that follow the jets up in the sky. It's like these clouds that, that the the trail that follows them. And then you start trying to research it and you learn about chemtrails and a conspiracy that these are chemicals falling from the sky to give your kids autism. You know, this is <laughs> this is the internet just conspiracies, disinformation, truth all bunched in together and if you can uh, create content for your campaign you can uh, get it out way cheaper than spending a lot of money on campaign ads and if you want any proof that that actually works look no further than Donald Trump because he's spent less than any other political party and he's had more headlines uh, in the news than anyone else. So uh, it, you can actually create content uh, very cheaply and distribute it very cheaply using social media. Um, on the other side, you can actually use user-created content. And in my talk, I gave the example of Hillary Clinton retweeting a uh, tweet that this lady made that uh, was a news story that had a uh, topic that Hillary Clinton's campaign agrees with. And so, uh, you know, just a click of a button for retweeting gives the campaign two things. It shows that, oh, this isn't just a wall of, of just tweets spamming out viewpoints. It shows that another person out there, just a normal average person, has the same viewpoint that the campaign does. And so it's showing that but it's also encouraging 
people to, you know, post these things because they're supporting their candidate. And then all of a sudden, oh, wow, like someone I follow got retweeted by the campaign. That's insane. You know, it, 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 it's got two benefits there and it encourages a whole lot more input from the voters, even if, you know, they're only retweeting one side. It gives the appearance that there's more people there that might have that viewpoint than what you might not otherwise be seeing there. And of course, it also has the advantages as world events occur in real time, responses can be made instantly. You don't have to wait for a press conference. You don't have to do anything. You just get on your phone and you blast a tweet out and you've made your statement to the entire world. And another thing is, is there's an opportunity there for candidates to actually hear from their constituents and be able to uh, engage with them. Uh, the Reddit's Ask Me Anything. Uh, how many politicians have done AMAs? There's been a handful. And uh, the idea that I could ask a political candidate or someone who's in office a question that I find important and have an answer makes me feel like I'm way more a part of the process than I normally would be. And it's free promotion for that candidate and getting their viewpoint across and getting more exposure. That's a, uh, a very awesome way to get viral exposure with minimal effort. And you still have the opportunity to answer the questions exactly how you want to and cherry pick all of that. Uh, as was evident in Obama's AMA where he only answered 10 questions and they were the 10 questions that you would want to answer if you were in his shoes and ignored the more popular upvoted ones that did not get answers. So, oh yeah. Of course. <laughs> so for a candidate, there's a lot of advantages to social media uh, and there are disadvantages as well just for the campaign themselves. And in Donald Trump's case, what he does is when he retweets stuff, he actually copies and pastes the entire tweet itself and pastes it with quotes around it. So it's actually... Uh, he's not clicking the retweet button. He's not even using Twitter's built-in, like, quoting uh, function when you're doing your own. Like, you know, when you can retweet and type in your own message. He doesn't do that. He just quotes and tweets its own individual thing, like the old school style of uh, a retweet. And uh, that actually has gotten him into trouble because... There are these things called bots that exist on the internet. And a few, what is it, like uh, a week or so ago, uh, there was a tweet that he sent out uh, that was an image comparing uh, his wife to Ted Cruz's wife. And, you know, his wife looks beautiful <laughs> and Ted Cruz's wife in that picture looks haggard. And the, it's in your typical meme-style impact font. Uh, the text at the top says, No need to spill the beans. And the bottom text is, The images are worth a thousand words. So, he <laughs> quotes this retweet. So the media instantly takes it up. And it's horrible because he's objectifying. And he, this is uncalled for. You're attacking wise, etc., etc. But it was actually simply a retweet. I mean, he shouldn't have retweeted it, but the, it was a quote. It wasn't anything 
you know, extraordinary there. It was just, uh, he was quoting someone like he always does, but it appeared to the media that this was actually a tweet from him himself. So that's hilarious to me that a retweet actually ended up being viewed as an, a, a, a tweet that he was putting out. And if you look at the actual uh, Twitter account that he retweeted, it is a account that is just uh, a bot. There's 31.7 thousand tweets, 25.1 thousand images. And all it is is like, tweets like make america great again hashtag everything imaginable and then an image with it <laughs> so this is a bot that he i mean he made the conscious decision to retweet it but it's still a bot that's sending out that information you know um and in another case uh gawker uh ended up tricking him into retweeting a mussolini tweet a quote from him uh I, I, I'm pretty sure it's the editor. I, I'm not sure of, of uh, Gawker. It tells a reporter, Ashley Feinberg, uh, I have a dumb project for you. And he says, I, I, I want a Twitter account that tweets Mussolini quotes, but credited to Trump and just keep retweeting uh, them at Trump until he eventually retweets one. And, uh, you know, this... Uh, she asked, do you think I will have more success with an egg or a Make America Great Again hat in regards to the avatar? And Alex says the hat. <laughs> and then Ashley says, uh, third option is Mussolini wearing the hat. And Alex replies with, LOL. <laughs> and so... Uh, they basically get someone to run a, qu a quick bot and uh, put the tweets out. And they got exactly what they wanted on February 28th when he quotes again the, re the tweet. It is better to live one day as a lion than a hundred years as a sheep. That was the tweet, the Mussolini tweet that he retweeted. Oh, that but one was? Yeah, yeah. I heard a, something a blurb, a blurb about it on the news, and uh, I remember hearing that quote, but I didn't know it was the Mussolini one. Yeah, yeah, that's what it was. <laughs> um, and and this week actually, uh, he had another bot that was causing him drama uh, in Wisconsin this time, and this was a robocaller. Uh, so what happened in this case was William Johnson who uh, founded the America National Super PAC. Uh, he funded this robocaller that called every landline in Wisconsin, according to him, and uh, played a very heartwarming uh, message. As you would imagine, a, uh, a pro-Trump uh, message would be. And, and the thing about this is that it turns out, unfortunately that this is a uh a white nationalist yeah he, he's he's oh, a big shit. old nazi yeah <laughs> and so he uh he he uh tweets or no he doesn't tweet this sorry he, he does this robocall with this message that's pro-trump uh but it's actually got a uh a, a huge backlash because you know 
if a Nazi is supporting Trump, that doesn't end up well. And that he's kind of had this history of this. And uh, I don't know if uh, if you guys would respond well if, if you got a robocall with, uh, with this message. I don't know. You could tell me. Um, I'll, I'll go ahead and play it for you right now. The American National Super PAC makes this call to support Donald Trump. My name is Mary Minshew, and I am a member of the American Freedom Party. I am voting for Donald Trump because he will not only be presidential, he will put America first. Furthermore, he will respect all women and will help preserve Western civilization. If you vote for Donald Trump, he will be a fine president. He will select the very best persons to be in his cabinet, and the entire world will benefit from his leadership. This message is paid for by William Johnson, a farmer and a white nationalist. 213-718-3908. This call is not authorized by Donald Trump. So there you have it. So we shape ourselves oh, shit. to fit this world. We're- Sorry. <laughs> I was like, who else is on the show now? <laughs> Hello. <laughs> so, so if you heard this, what would your reaction be? Hell no, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, that's that's ended up, you know, there's a, a huge, you know, a ton, tons of stories in the media about this robocall. And that's what... Uh, actually is is something here that i think is interesting is that uh you have uh this guy's claiming that that entire robocall campaign costs six thousand dollars calling every single landline in a state for six grand that's not that bad actually you know and so i started thinking of okay well what can we do to uh as part of this whole like uh Guerrilla grassroots. Let's take that idea and let's run with that. I, uh, you know, you got this supporter who's got this uh, horrible message. Um, yeah, that that sounds like a great avenue for sabotaging a campaign. And so, here's some of the attack methods that we could explore here and and look at doing uh, that anyone could really pull off with a, a little bit of resources. We're not talking about forming a huge hacking team to take over Latin American politics. Uh, this is something that one individual or a small group of individuals combined could potentially pull off some epic things. So uh, the first attack method here that I was thinking of was social media bait and switch. So uh, it goes back to that using user created content. If we've got Donald Trump over here retweeting Mussolini quotes and some bot that puts out this unflattering image of his, uh, you know, opponent's wife, I'm sure you could trick this dude into retweeting a video that was positive about him or negative about his opposition. As a matter of fact, just yesterday... He retweeted a YouTube video that someone linked that was actually linked to Alex Jones talking about some conspiracy thing. So <laughs> if I can get Donald Trump to like tweet a video of Alex Jones, I think it might be easy to get not just Donald Trump, but other candidates potentially to retweet a video. And so if you post it on YouTube, that's actually what you would think most people would want to post a video on because it is youtube but 
In this case, it wouldn't work out so well because the idea with this is that we want to do a bait and switch. We want to use Vimeo because Vimeo is a popular site uh, and we upload our video there. We have our title set to, I don't know, make America great again, Trump's the best or whatever. Uh, and you have a video that is for the candidate that you're targeting. And after that has gained traction, after you get that person to retweet it, or even enough of their supporters to retweet it, that's when you go in and with Vimeo specifically, you can replace the file. So you upload another video that's actually negative towards the candidate and or, or supports the candidate, but it's some racist shit like this or some like sexist stuff or, or, or something crazy. Like if you were targeting Hillary Clinton in this regard, you could change the video to where Hillary Clinton supports Syrian refugees and wants all Syrian res refugees to have a great life in America. That's why Hillary has announced her plan for retirement benefits for Syrian refugees. Instantly, everyone's going to be like, what the fuck is that? And so you can do all kinds of crazy things. But the idea is that you switch the video once it gains traction and the URL stays the same. All the links are there and everyone looks like a fool uh, because you just changed the entire message of the video. Another one is linking to an article in which you have like a URL shortener uh, uh, like Bitly. I don't know. Does Bitly let you change the URL? I want to say that I thought you could do that, but I've uh, never tried. Yeah, there's there's there are URL sor shorteners that allow you to change the URL. I've used them before, um, but even if you can't necessarily use a, UR a URL shortener, you could use your own domain and just use HTTP 302 redirects redirect to the actual article. And then redirect to your fake article or whatever the the antagonizing one afterwards, uh, and that could be really really funny because if you see what someone does without that kind of bait and switch, imagine what you could accomplish if you actually did a bait and switch. <laughs> um, the Donald, yeah, falling for all the things. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, another uh, attack is actually going over the emails for the campaigns themselves. So phishing campaigns, uh, attacking the email servers, using the email servers as a pivot point into their infrastructure, using that as a way to say, oh, this is their mail server. Uh, what's uh, in that subnet? What, what can I look at that's around that that could be potentially, you know, other servers used by the campaign? And how, how I would suggest to go about getting, um, you know, the information for this is uh, if you look at a campaign site, like I don't know what uh, a, a current campaign like. So let's say BernieSanders.com. I'm guessing that's the campaign's website. Uh, it, it's probable that the, the campaign uses, you know, that domain for their email, but it's also highly probable that they use another domain for their email. And that's something that you can determine what provider they use or what the actual email addresses are by looking up uh, the, the registration records for the, the ballots in, in states. These are, this is public information. You can look it up. You can look up the, the campaign manager's information on there, their email address, their phone numbers. And depending on the candidate and, the, and how big the campaign is, you, you will be able to see 
you know, phone numbers that may not even be officially with the campaign. That might actually be their cell phone number or some other uh, personal or, or more uh, closer to that individual's phone number, a direct line to that individual that gives you a foot in for social engineering or potentially using that information to uh, take over accounts using password reset, et cetera, et cetera. Um, on the email itself, you got the, the naming convention for the email address. So then you can start looking at a phishing campaign, a spear phishing campaign for that, uh, you know, campaign itself. Um, uh, you could, you know, do something as simple as, uh, an email that's, that's just irrelevant, but then it has a link that you can then get their IP address. And, you know, there's all kinds of different avenues there to be able to start, uh, doing your, uh, fingerprinting and then of course uh you could attack the the mail server itself which you know that that goes without saying much another campaign uh that you can launch is uh, ddos attacks and that's something that has been used in uh this uh kind of hacktivism and campaign strategies for years uh, depending on where you're at, one one country that loves their DDoS attacks is China. And as I mentioned earlier, the great cannon of China was used in a DDoS attack uh, against uh, the, uh, what was it? God, I can't even remember who it was against. Uh, but it w- basically they targeted GitHub and, and Great Fire. That's what it was. Great Fire monitors all of the blocked websites in China and the largest DDoS attack ever uh, was uh, launched with the Great Cannon of China. What was used here was a border uh, router injected uh, JavaScript and basically redirected all of the users of popular Chinese websites to GitHub. And man, that was a beautiful DDoS attack. Uh, and it was very clever because you're using actual clients to do this, not, uh, not botnets. The botnet was everyone who used the internet in China who went to badu.com, you know, that is an amazing DDoS attack. But an earlier, uh, version of this kind of, uh, civil disobedience, this guerrilla grassroots, uh, was done by the Electronic Disturbance Theater, uh, who were a... They, they considered this uh, performance art, which I don't understand. It was actually hacktivism, but they called it art. You know how that shit gets all... You know... Like, Mr. Chin's Python scripts aren't art. I'm sorry. They're awesome, but I don't call that art. Anyways. They are an art in how to... Make sure you architect it right to begin with. Yeah, but you would not call your Python script for scraping a website to find Jimmy John's locations a work of performance art. I'm sorry. I would consider it to be a very elegant solution to a unique <laughs> problem. <laughs> yes, but you, you get the point. That is that uh, is one of my more interesting feats. I, I stand behind that, but no, it is not a work of art. It is not a giant well, sculpture you could say it's, penis a, it's, it's art you could say it's art but you wouldn't say that ddosing shit is performance art I'm sorry that doesn't work I would say your code is a work of art but it's not performance art by launching code 
Do you think low it's a orbit of ion cannon? Right. Yeah, 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 exactly. Well, I'm glad that you don't think that launching a DDoS attack is performance art. I was getting concerned about your theater major there for a minute. Ah, yeah. yeah that's one thing that can be, definitely be taught across the board uh, is performance art. Now, the uh, I would say that my, my DOS attack against you is sort of performance art because it was done doing a show, but I digress. Anyways, back to the point. Um, their performance art was a piece of software called FloodNet. And this was pretty cool because this is like a, a very early idea of DDoSing and where they would organize sit-ins. And what this was, was it's a HTML file and Java applet. <laughs> that, because what could go wrong here? Yeah, that would just reload an address over and over again. Which is like all this really did was like you taped down your F5 key in a web browser. That's all it really did. It was a very trivial DOS tool, but with these sit-ins, they were able to DDoS sites and take it down in a very trivial manner. This is back in the 90s, so you got to tip your hat to them. Uh, one thing about the Electronic Disturbance Theater that's pretty cool is when they would do these sit-ins, they'd have little parties uh, where they had a DJ and everything. And if you're thinking that sounds cool... Uh, well, it, it was it wasn't that great because uh, I've seen video of these parties and it, it was not it was not that entertaining. They, they, it was it was what you would imagine a bunch of uh, art majors sitting in a room sipping on wine talking about how much you know fun they're having uh, while their computers are doing all the work was. It wasn't like a, a hackers movie style uh, party, but. The, the fact remains that they were able to do this DDoSing for political reasons, and uh, the concept exists today, of course, with Anonymous and uh, the DDoS attacks that occur there with the low orbit ion cannon, because that is elite hacks right there. But yeah, DDoS attacks can be effective. Imagine if someone was trying to do the Tea Party uh, concept that Ron Paul did, and that entire day, you've DDoSed their website. That wouldn't be that great for that campaign. Uh, especially if there was some like announcement on, on a website. Hey, we're going to be having a special message. Everyone needs to look into what we're going to be talking about at 7 p.m. And then the site's down. You know, There's a lot of things that can be done there. And another way, uh, angle that I'll talk about is the agent provocator uh, supporter. This goes back to the idea that a supporter of a campaign can actually reflect negatively on uh, the campaign itself. So uh, where, where we really jump to here is looking at uh, robocalling. Uh, I played that call. Obviously, it's offensive to probably 99% of people who would have voted in Wisconsin. So how can we go about targeting callers uh to uh incite rage or, or, or reaction and manipulate a campaign in our favor and so mr chen how would we go about doing that well um we just simply tell them that their um pension benefits from their employers that they've worked so hard for are going to be uh removed in favor of a stock traded 
uh, fund of some sort that charges 30% interest fees and uh, they cannot get their money out until they are 81 and a half. Oh, yeah, there you go. I was thinking of like a one-liner, but that works too. <laughs> uh, so, okay. So, uh, Mr. Chin. Uh, something involving um, sexual activity. Uh, would. Like, I, uh, yeah, yeah. Like, uh, say it's a conservative candidate that's coming out. That would be huge. That would be all over the news, actually. That would be highly entertaining. Uh, so let's go with that example. And uh, we look at that $6,000 amount, and well, is there a way that we could do this to where it's cheaper, more cost-effective? And, and uh, you know, the, the key there is we're looking at ad campaigns and how those work online. You know, if we do Twitter ads... You know, you can spend a little bit of money and get a huge impact. And the reason for that is because you're going to be specifying a specific demographic. And so the idea with this uh, concept is that we're going to take a, uh, a group of individuals that we want to target and only have those people targeted with this call, not uh, everyone, because we just want to piss people off we're not actually campaigning for this person. This is sabotage. And so we have to acquire voter information. If you live in certain states, uh, there's only like three, I think. Oklahoma, Florida, Rhode Island, there might be another couple. Uh, but you can request the entire voter database from the state and they will give it to you. Uh Unfortunately, most states don't give that information out because, you know, it's, it gives their party affiliation, their, their address, uh, their name, et cetera, et cetera. But if you were able to acquire voter information, that could be really beneficial in this robo-dialing campaign, obviously. Uh, so what's a way that we could go about doing that? Uh, well, I looked into that, and there's a couple of options with our campaigns. All of them have phone banks. So that's the, the angle that I was thinking. Hey, you want a robo-dial? Why don't we look at phone banks? That could be a great resource for this. Uh, on the Republican side, the way to get into the phone banks with them, you have to send an email and have to go through this whole process of kind of manually be brought into that process. It's not something you can just jump in. Democrats, on the other side are way more in touch with web technologies and platforms. So it's actually pretty accessible. And by pretty accessible, I mean you literally can just submit a form with absolute bullshit information. And next thing you know, you're looking at live voter data. And this is designed for you to use your own cell phone or your Skype account or, or whatever to call this person up, read the script, fill out information in the forms there and continue this process over and over again. And on some of these sites, <laughs> you can actually look at the information uh, and see how it's being submitted to the server and potentially uh, manipulate the information that's being sent. I mean, hell, you don't even have to do anything crazy. You could just sit in the web browser and say, Oh, uh, this candidate, uh, well, when I call this person, they're for the opposing candidate. They're for the opposing candidate. They're for the opposing candidate over and over and over again. 
and save all of that information by copying and pasting if you wanted to. You could do it manually or you could script it. Uh, because at the end of the day, this is just a, a web page that keeps feeding you information because it thinks you're doing these calls. Once you have that information there, you have a database of phones that you can use for your robo-dialing. And you also have the added benefit of completely fucking up all of the accuracy of their information. The, the phone banks are extremely vital for campaigns, and especially on the grassroots level. This is where they not only get an opportunity to have the, a volunteer speak to a potential voter and advocate for the candidate, they're also able to get valuable information about where that person stands. So polls where they they focus on a few hundred to a few thousand people, this is your, your entire voter base that's being called and you actually get real information that isn't relying on a poll. This is candidate-specific information. And the idea of being able to go in and manipulate all of that information to where you think a candidate is going to be way stronger in a state than they would that they uh, would normally be or have a, the opposing candidate be stronger could actually tip the lever and you could manipulate the ca the campaign into uh, the outcome that would be more desirable for you. That's a very real possibility and it can totally be done today. Aside from that, you can also get all those numbers and now you have a nice, beautiful list to set up for a robo-dialing campaign. And at that point, it's literally just using Tor to go onto a VPS provider that's, that accepts Bitcoin and do the same for a SIP provider and you're good to go. Or as been suggested as a viable opportunity since you're doing this shit anyways, you might as well just go on Shodan and start finding open SIP servers and use that for your benefit as well. So uh, once you have all of that list, the last thing there is recording the offensive message, which as Mr. Chin has suggested is screwing over pension funds or something sexual like coming out of the closet. And then you have the impact. If you could just target a few thousand individuals in the right area, you could get this in the news cycle that day. And then it's game over. It's done. It's out there. And no one can say anything. Hell, you could even frame it. Because, again, you're not trying to do this legally. This is this is guerrilla. You could actually frame a super PAC as having a message that they're not even remotely associated with. And this is all, this is all theoretical with what I'm about to say. But um, what if you did targeted... Uh, a targeted approach to who who you call like find the most vocal um supporters of a particular candidate and hit them with it so you know it'll get just that much more media attention i'm talking about the the people who are you know hard to the left or hard to the right with you know a couple thousand followers on facebook and that sort of thing instead of just email blasting right uh, that, that could potentially save even more money and, and, and yes and if you look at targeting this if you were going to go through this process process and you're and you're dumping all of this database basically you would be looking at the potential of okay i've got ages i've got names i've got locations i've got phone numbers 
at that point, you could start looking for social media accounts that tie into all of this. You've got the name, you've got their phone number, uh, you've got their age. You can start actually targeting, oh, wait, uh, who's someone who lives in this state that's a pundit? Oh, this is, okay, that jack-off right there, that pundit right there. Okay, let me look that person up. Oh, yeah, I got their, their record right here. Let me make sure that they're included in this robo-dial. And since it's voter information anyways, it's, it's going to go along with the narrative. And yeah, it could be very effective if this guy's robo-dial could be effective. I'm pretty sure a targeted approach uh, would be highly successful. So making these calls uh, is really simple. And, you know, another idea I had was uh, instead of doing this like sabotage of, of doing an offensive robo-dial... You could actually just take the phone bank from an opposing candidate and the one that you actually want going, you just read that candidate's script. So you're using the, the, oppo the opponent's database to, to use the information for the other side. There's multiple ways to go about doing this. You could do sabotage in, in so many different ways. And that's just a couple of ideas there to uh, throw out and see what can be done. We know it can be done because the current Mexican president ha is in power due to methods similar to this, only way more organized and well-funded. But if you could have a group of individuals of the scale of a, I don't know, Occupy movement, not just the entire movement, I'm talking about like just the people who went to Occupy protests and in your uh, state's biggest city. That's as much as you would need to be able to actually use these strategies to hijack campaigns across the board and, and manipulate them and do uh, a true form of guerrilla grassroots. So that's it. That's the whole concept right there. So you have any, any thoughts, guys? Oh my! <laughs> <laughs> Hello. Hello. Uh, that's it. No. That's nothing? it. No. No. I mean, you've you've covered this in depth, pretty extensively, both uh, the teaser, um, and then and then this. Um, I've said all that immediately comes to mind. I mean, I'm just thinking about the PR repercussions, but. Oh come on. Um, I'm not, no, I'm not, no, 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 I don't mean the PR repercussions to the attacker. I'm thinking about the PR repercussions to the campaign that's targeted. Like, that would be a shitstorm. Oh, of course, yeah. Uh, are there any other ideas that you could think of? Uh, if you really wanted to have an effect, like, if you're going to do this grassroots movement anyway, target it, like, it make. I mean, it's going to be a shitstorm anyway, so you might as well make it as close to election day as possible and piss off as many people. Or major upset. Yeah. Like. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Not that I can down it or anything, but I mean, if you're gonna go big. Yeah, yeah. Make it make it your own October surprise. Yeah. It was October, right? I think so. What the election? It, yeah, you're old enough to remember Black Mass. <laughs> the October. elections take place in November. No, the October surprise, the the Reagan thing. And what, was it October? Oh, 
I was a little kid when Reagan was president. <laughs> I know, it was a joke. Yeah, it was October surprise. I Googled it. It worked. Halloween was my October surprise. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, uh, Black Matt, do you have any... I know you have to have Good. some input. There's um, got to be an Urban Dictionary definition for October surprise. I apologize, but in honor of Zandy, I actually had to uh, make a couple of trips to the restroom during this segment. So there were large chunks that I lost <laughs> in more ways than one. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, my God. Um, but... Uh, YOLO. <laughs> All right, well, here's it in the nutshell. There was the robocalls uh, targeting your political enemies. Uh, there was the social media bait-and-switch concept, uh, doing phishing and hacking campaigns for emails, because that's always juicy, DDoS attacks, and agent provocator supporters, which kind of goes with that, uh, you know, whole robo-dialing thing, and also boots on the ground sabotage so do you have as far as uh, the theoretical ways to manipulate a campaign yeah oh man well instead of how about we look at it this way since it's it's scary to say oh we're, we're coming up with ideas to attack a campaign really what we're pointing out is vulnerabilities that campaigns face what's a vulnerability that I haven't mentioned that you may think of Oh, definitely the the robocall stuff. Um, I mean, with any sort of grassroots organiz, you know, like organizing, you are you have a risk to opsec with a lot of these grassroots people that have no idea what to do. I mean, for one example, people who print uh, instructions and login credentials on a piece of paper that they take to uh, a printing center to make copies of and disseminate. Yeah. Which uh, I can't really... That's actually happened, but that's all <laughs> I can say. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, I mean... Uh, on that on that awesome thing, uh, you know, you look at, at things like uh, Anthony Weiner with his, his Weiner. Um, targeting uh, candidates uh, with stuff that's incriminating in that regard can be huge as well. Dating sites, social media, heading them up. Oh, yeah. Uh, Honeypotting them, basically. I mean, it's, it's, it's just going to get a lot harder to be a candidate and uh, to get away with things. I mean, you're going to have to be more transparent because... You know, this is the internet age. Yeah, indeed. There are a lot of benefits, but a lot of pitfalls. Yeah. I also think, I mean, I'm not sure how campaigns are structured, but, um, I mean, for all intents and purposes, they are full-fledged organizations, as any business would be. And, you know, with their own infrastructure, their own staffing, how much staffing do they put into security and things like that? I'm guessing not enough. Yeah, not enough. And depending on the on the candidate running, you know, it could be very, very insignificant. Yeah, and and and, and you know, this this is focusing 
the, this concept, you know, like the examples and stuff, I'm talking about the presidential election mainly because of that's what's going on. But if you applied these concepts of methodology on a state level uh, campaign, you could actually oh, yeah. be way more effective and it would be way easier to pull off. Oh, yeah. And one thing with these campaigns in regards to that whole staffing and security thing is that a lot of these campaigns aren't actually doing a bunch of stuff in-house. They use third parties for a lot of various parts of, of the puzzle. Um, it, it, from everything from they may not actually host their email internally. It may be a third party, uh, you know, hell they might even just use gmail accounts you know what i'm saying like it's it, it can vary from campaign to campaign what they use and what technologies they use so that's worth looking into as well uh the security with the campaign internally might be top notch but who they use to provide a service or uh metrics for certain things could actually be vulnerable for manipulation or exploitation yeah definitely so i guess that's it for your mom uh for this yeah, I just, week i just posted to support the troops for you oh thank you <laughs> you're welcome <laughs> so uh any closing words for uh you mr chin For the mediocre Zandy, I'm Mr. Chin. <laughs> All right, and how about you, Black Math? Oh, man. Fucking, yeah. See you next week. All righty. And how about you, Zandybot? Hello. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I want that as a ringtone. <laughs> yeah, me too. A notification. For a notification. Yeah, notification. <laughs> Uh, hey, send me that text real quick. All right, yeah, just send it. Hello. <laughs> oh, man. I know, it sucks when, you, when I can make you laugh at the drop of a hat. Well, you wouldn't know. You, you can't empathize. Yeah, well, I mean, get your own soundboard. <laughs> I know, I'm too lazy. <laughs> God, it sounds so natural. Like, it sounds like he's there. Yeah. And thank you, Zencaster, for enabling a platform in which I have high-quality tracks for each individual person that I can create these great soundboards with. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, let's wrap this up. And uh, from all of us at Shadow Systems, as always, we encourage you to hack the planet. Shadow Systems.